It's Herb Alpert and the Team of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli, and this is Fangraphs Audio. I think it's fair to say, listener, that in a general sense, both Fangraphs the site and Fangraphs the podcast are dedicated to baseball enthusiasm. Indeed, this edition of the podcast features a pair of baseballing enthusiasts, and specifically baseball card enthusiasts. My guests are Chris Harris and Chris Thomas. They are editors of the site Baseball Cardpedia, a website that catalogs all manner of baseball sets for as long as baseball cards have been around. And what follows, I discuss with this pair of Chris's, the Baseball Cardpedia Project, and I ask Chris Harris and Chris Thomas to give me a primer of sorts for one who might be interested in becoming part of the hobby but is overwhelmed by the variety of baseball card collecting as it exists today. I also find out that the 1986 Donruss-rated rookie card of Jose Canseco is not worth $1,000 as I had imagined. Finally, I'll ask the listener to note that if he or she finds any irregularities in the audio quality of what's to follow, that it's merely because I was forced to conduct this interview from an area bunker where my wife was not able to hear or see me ask questions about which future baseball cards I might buy. It's for my good and for the good of the podcast listener. Thank you for understanding, and thank you in advance for listening to this interview with Chris Harris and Chris Thomas of Baseball Cardpedia, right now. Baseball Cardpedia, though, is really cool. I mean, it's not the name. The name is pretty clear as to what it is. It's a. It's essentially a. An encyclopedia of of it, I guess all of the baseball card sets that exist, or at least at least a pretty fair chunk of them. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, we 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 started the site uh, uh, about two years ago, and we wanted one single resource for everything um, baseball cards. Uh, uh, what, what was happening is as companies were um, going bankrupt or merging with other card companies, this information wasn't readily available. Online, uh, you can find it in yearly publications that would come out. But the problem was, is where let's say you buy a a, um, a book that of, of in 2010 that lists all the cards that were ever made. You have to buy that book again every year because new cards are released every year. And what's happening is you're paying, I don't know, twenty, thirty dollars for a book that ninety percent of it is a book that you already have. Right, so and, and we, I'll submit that for listeners, pe- people who are listening to this right now, who, uh, for example, like me, uh, were avid card collectors, you know, maybe in the late '80s and early '90s, um, but are but are decidedly not anymore. The the sort of face of the hobby has changed quite a bit. Um, there it, there are fewer uh, for baseball cards. There are fewer manufacturers, and that there's kind of just one manufacturer at this point, tops. Um, one licensed manufacturer, right? One licensed manufacturer, right? And, and uh, Chris Harris, we'll get to this momentarily, but you've recently proclaimed the death of Tops, so so we'll. I don't start. know. If I proclaim the death of Tops. I proclaim the death of Tops to me. <laughs> it's not really worth collecting anymore. All right. Well, we'll we'll address that momentarily. But but for anyone, yeah, who collected like Scores gone, Fleer's gone, Upper Deck is. Kind kind of gone, and Don Don Russ is gone. Don Russ is gone, and sort of gone. Sort of gone, right? Because extra yeah. elite is a thing, and I don't really, 
I don't totally understand what that means. We'll talk about that. However, under the banner of tops, there are what, like ten to fifteen different uh, different uh, sets, essentially. Yeah, I, mean, I think it's upwards to twenty-two or twenty-four, I believe, a year. Uh, tops by their license is limited to seventeen different okay. releases. Um, that works out too because tops. The Topps flagship brand is released over three series. There's Series 1, which for the 2012 edition just came out last week. Series 2, which will be out, I believe, in May or June. And then Topps Update, which will be out in October. That counts as three unique sets, product releases. But there are also all sorts of other releases that they do that uh, sort of... Uh, are segmented to different uh, niches in the hobby. Uh, brands like Allen and Ginter and Heritage are really toward the uh, the traditional collector, as well as to the uh, the collector that kind of likes the uh, the vintage slash pre war look. Uh, and those generally fall in the the, the two to four dollar a pack range. And uh, you get all the way up to products like Topps Tribute and Bowman Sterling, which are uh, more high-end uh, in the $50 to $100 range. So there's really, it, it depends on what you like, what you don't like, and how big your wallet is. Uh, there's pretty much one or a couple of brands that Topps makes that's, uh, that's really segmented for you. Uh Nowadays, it's become so segmented, though, that it's really impossible to really collect everything out there. Right, and uh, it would be, and it would cost a lot of money. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Now, I want to get a sense of your guys before we get into maybe some specific cards, specific sets. Kind of want to get a sense of what your sort of um, your your collecting your collector's biographies are, sort of how how it started and when it became. Uh, uh, when it became uh, like a real thing. So, Chris Thomas, can we start with you as far as that goes? Sure. I started collecting in 1986. Uh, I would see packs at, at our corner um, corner store. Or, uh, they were they were they were uh, sold quite often at the concession stand at, uh, at our little league uh, games. So I so I bought a lot of cards from in '86 and, and growing up through the the late 80s, and, and then I kept collecting all the way through the 90s and collected on and off through the 2000s and then sort of kept on doing it. So, yeah, no, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to guess, and of course I don't know, but and I'm sure that uh, it's possible you guys are aware of the numbers to this effect, but it does seem as though collecting... I mean, there was there was some kind of boom in the late 80s, early 90s, and then maybe the market got saturated, or people were less interested in it. And by the mid 90s, um, it had slowed down considerably. Is that I mean, is that generally the case? Yeah, it, it was almost like uh, it was almost like the housing bubble. Uh, people, uh, you know, throughout the 80s and into the 90s, it, baseball cards were seen primarily. Well, I don't say primarily, but more and more people that really didn't collect cards were getting into it, uh, mostly as a some sort of a, a trendy investment. 
And uh, the card companies really printed to that demand. Um, and as, as a result, a lot of the, the card sets that came out in the late 80s and early 90s, what we like to call the junk era of, of trading cards, uh, are kind of worthless now, monetarily. I mean, they're, they're still valuable as a, as a, a collectible, but certainly not as something valuable. Well, I know, yeah, I know this recently. My sort of interest was was once again piqued by collecting. Um, a week and a half ago now, I was at Twins Fest in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and uh, among the other things I noticed was you could still, well, I shouldn't say still, you can now get like a box of, you know, 88 Donruss for like $5, or I should say a complete set, factory sealed. Exactly. And, and, uh, and you're suggesting that uh, cards are not made in the same sort of quantity now as they are as they were then. Well, you, know, you also have to remember back then that there were only like one or two releases per year per company. So that, for example, Donruss, they would make their main set, release it around opening day, then release like an update set toward the end of the year, and that's it. Nowadays, with Tops, they release, like I said, dozens of different products. So they're really collectively kind of making the same number of cards, uh, but just in different brands and in different sets. So, uh, so Chris Thomas, what kept you collecting sort of even as the mid-90s came around? I was just uh, always interested in collecting cards. Uh, I... I when I went to college, I sort of um, got away from it a little bit. But after, uh, you know, getting out of, after graduating college and and after I got a job, I had a little bit extra money and I decided to get back into um, collecting. I don't know. I just it was something always interesting about cards and collecting them and trying to trying to uh, obtain every one. Now, is it an investment for you or or, or a, a pleasure or somewhere in between? Mostly pleasure. Okay. I don't really see. I don't sell a lot of cards, so yeah, I just I just buy or or, or trade a lot. Okay, uh, Chris Harris, is, is your sort of collecting biography similar to to Chris Thomas's, or have a different wrinkle? I would say so. Um, I'm a little older than Chris, the other Chris. Um, I started collecting in the early '80s. When my mom would go to like the convenience store and just buy me a pack. I guess just a to shut me up. Um, and that's how I was introduced to collecting. I, I really, through high school, uh, I kind of got away from it a little bit. But uh, after high school in the mid-90s, uh, which was probably a good time to get back into, into card collecting after the, after the card bubble kind of burst, uh, I started getting back in the in the cards again. I started rediscovering um, these uh, pictures with baseball players on them. Yeah. Now, as far as that goes, it, it seems again that, that what's available now um, is quite different than what was available in that in what you, you refer to as the junk era, and I'm more than comfortable calling it that. Um, definitely one of the things I've noticed is lots of what are called parallel sets 
so there will be, um, you know, for every for every card in like a you know 330 card set or 600 card set, there's also a gold version, uh, or maybe in some cases a black version, and uh, these are these are typically numbered or something like that. There are lots of inserts, um, and then as we mentioned before, there are tons of like totally different brands. When did what are the sort of stages at which this came about? You want to take that, Chris? Or? Yeah, well, inserts started, what, in the mid-90s? I would say around 95, 94, 95, maybe even a little, a little bit earlier, maybe 93. Um, as, as the card companies started to, wheel, um, to, to reduce the, the number of cards they printed in the mid-90s, you started to see a lot of insert cards or chase cards where they would be one in every box or, or, or one in every couple boxes or one in a couple packs, depending on the, the insert. And then a few years after that, we started to see parallel cards, like you said, the, the gold cards or the um, silver cards or cards of different uh, different colors. And I think the parallel cards are, are easy for the manufacturers to create because it's just the same card with a different with a different color or uh, with a number. So uh, those those came about in the late 90s, starting maybe in 96 or 97. And then and then there's also, and this is sort of, we, we, one of the sorts of inserts, there's a lot of uh, autographs uh, now available and also game-worn gear, game-worn cards. Right. The first autographs really were about 20 years ago. Uh, I remember Upper Deck got Reggie Jackson to sign, I think it was 2,000 cards. Um, again, as sort of a, a chase element to get people to, to buy more packs. Uh, but game, game use really didn't start until the mid 90s, around 97, 98. Um, and it's become over the years a bit of a, a cat chasing, a dog chasing its tail thing. Because, on the one hand, collectors want game used, they want autographs. Or, or some collectors do. But on the other hand, they've, they've now become almost commodities in and of themselves. Uh, m- most plain vanilla jerseys are really indistinguishable and do not sell for what they did years ago. But as long as collectors continue to demand them, or or more to the point, as long as collectors perceive that they're somehow valuable, uh, the card companies really don't have much of a choice but to continue to, to mass-produce these things. I think that's almost the same way, well, not necessarily as much, but almost the same with autographs as well. Right, in the sense that Perhaps they're not for everybody, but there's still decidedly a market for them. There is a mar- Yes, there is a market for, for certain players, but uh, a game jersey card of, you know, a, a middle-inning reliever or a backup catcher really isn't going to go for much. So here's, to, to, Chris, yeah, to Chris's point, I, I was at a, a recent card show, and I, I saw – a dealer with just a, a, a full ta- a, an entire table full of game used cards, maybe I don't know a couple thousand, and the box said uh, three for a, three for five dollars. 
<laughs> and they were just full, full of them. So he, he must have either collected them or bought them from somebody, and he's just trying to sell them off as, you know, as fast as he can. And these are supposedly the, the hits that drive sales, but now they go for three, four bucks. Yeah. Okay, so, so say, well, this is not hard to say. This is the fact. Say that I'm interested, right, in, um, I guess, participating in the hobby again, right? I don't necessarily want to spend uh, lots of money, right? But I want to participate in it at some level. And even though I don't necessarily look at it as an investment per se, um, I'm still interested in, you know, I would still like, you know, for, say, down the road, the cards to have uh, some value beyond merely, uh, you know, I, I guess merely like personal value. What would you guys advise is, is sort of the way to enter uh, back into the hobby? Well, uh, I think there are there are a number of different types of collectors. You know, we have we have set builders that that build entire sets of car, uh, of cards. Uh, we have player collectors that that collect only cards of a specific player. Uh, we have team team collectors that collect cards of a certain team. So you could go one of those routes if you want. Uh, otherwise, you would just have to pick and choose products based on um, the design, uh, the price point. Uh, the era. What's your general uh, strategy at this point, uh, Chris Thomas? Well, I collect most sets that are collectible. Um, in terms of, can they be? Can can they? Are they obtained easily? You know, do I have to um, spend years trying to complete a set? And I don't. I don't want to get into something like that. So I, I try. I I have enough cards now that I just. Figured I might as well keep going and filling in gaps in my collection, and I've I'm getting there. But there are still cards from the from the 80s and 90s and the last 20 years that I don't that I don't have. So it's it's just filling in gaps and then buying um, and trying to keep up with the new the new releases. Now, Chris Harris, how should I? What would be your suggestion? Is it depart from Chris Thomas's explanation at all? There really is no one correct way to collect baseball cards anymore. It's really, what do you want? Do you want to collect cards of your favorite player? Do you want to collect just teams, or do you just want to collect certain brands? Um, if I were advising somebody to get into the hobby, and you don't want to spend a lot of money, I think a lot of the, the junk-era cards of the 80s and 90s are a great introduction into card collecting I think, for a lot of people. They're cheap, they're value, they're fun to collect, uh, and there are rookie cards of players like Roberto Alomar, Tom Glavin, and John Smoltz who are either in the Hall of Fame or are going to be in the Hall of Fame that you can get for only a buck or two, which is really one of the advantages of that era, to be honest with you. But uh, if you're just collecting, if you just want to get like the cards of the players of today, uh, then just buy a, buy a set of tops, just buy a factory set. Get all the cards, get all the players, and uh, it's a good um, good thing to sock away for, um, especially if you have kids and you want to show them uh, a slice of 
baseball in the early 20th century, 21st century. Yeah. Now, now to that point, for example, what's the relationship between the quality of a player and maybe perhaps the value of his cards either now or in the future? I think the uh, one of the biggest determinants is um, where they play. Uh, if you have an NY on your cap, your card's going to be worth a little more than somebody who plays in Kansas City, even if you're roughly the same uh, measurable kind of player. Um, some, um, and, and again, it's all—it's also based on on where you live. Um, in some areas, cards of the home team will will sell for more than than others. But for the most part, the big market teams, their players' cards do sell for a, a lot of money, a lot more than other players. Um, I mean, there, there's a reason why Topps has put Mickey Mantle in its flagship set every year since 2006, even though he's been dead for, for 15 years. <laughs> because... Um, a Mickey Mantle plain vanilla base card. You pull that out of the pack, and you can get maybe two or three bucks for it. Is it more rare, or it's just people like to see Mickey Mantle's face on a baseball card? Mantle still has a tremendous following in this hobby, even among those people like myself who never saw him play. Um, he's the all-American American, and he played for the Yankees. Now, was it his? Was it his '53 tops card that was? Was that his rookie card? Uh, his rookie card is actually is from 1951. Now, a lot of people may not know that, and it wasn't made by Tops. It was actually made by Bowman. Oh. But the card, but the card that everyone his his most valuable card was actually from '52, and that's the card that, in high grade, will fetch six figures easily the most valuable card of the post-World War II era. Right. I remember that uh, from from my uh, early days, you know, with a Beckett monthly in my hands. Uh, that was always the, the card that was uh, going the most. Now, if I am uh, – now, for example, or a question I have is, are, are rookie cards going to generally be the most valuable card of a player? And to that I would add – what is the definition of a rookie card now? Well, rookie cards can be the most valuable uh, a card of a player. What happens now is Topps releases a couple of products that contain cards of minor league players. And a lot of those cards are quote-unquote labeled as, as a player's rookie card, even though they're not depicted... And they're not a major leaguer, and, and sometimes they're not depicted in a major league uniform. Uh, those are the cards, and a lot of times those are those can be found um, as base cards and or autographed cards. So those are the ones I, I think that most people seem to to collect as that that player's rookie card. So when a few years go by, or maybe even you know, a year when that player makes uh, uh, gets caught up to the major leagues. More cards are released of that player, uh, it, like in uh, base tops and in other products. And, and even though that card might be labeled as a rookie card, it may be um, 
that 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 particular player's rookie card is 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 oftentimes a few years before that. What happened was that in 2006 they changed the rules, the uh, the players' association. Before that point, tops, which actually predates the establishment of the players' association, and the other trading card companies, Fleer, Upper Deck, at all. When it came to player selection, they had two different rules that they played by. Uh, the competition can only include MLBPA members, and that is players that were on 40-man rosters. Tops, on the other hand, had a practice and still continues to this day because it's, it's a competitive advantage for them of signing the top minor league prospects, and even a few marginal minor league prospects, and including them in quote-unquote major league baseball sets. And throughout the 90s and into the early part of the 2000s, Topps really exploited this, especially into their Bowman brands, by including uh, minor league players in major league sets. Now, because a player's rookie card is defined as a player's first card in a major league set, it was often two, three, four, five years before the other companies could even release a card of that particular player, but his rookie card was in regular tops. In 2006, that changed. Uh, both tops and Upper Deck, which were the only companies left by that, had to abide by the same standard. They can only include actual major league players in a major league set. But Topps was allowed to include those minor leaguers as part of an insert set. So now uh, you open a pack of, like, a set of, like, Bowman baseball. Uh, you get like a 220 card set of major leaguers, but then another 110 quote unquote insert prospects, which were the prospects that used to be included in the base set, but now can't be. And it's those prospects that technically aren't rookie cards anymore that a lot of collectors still continue to treat as rookie cards. Right, so like take a player like like Bryce Harper, for example, right, who a couple years ago, number one overall pick in baseball, uh, and is regarded now as, you know, on varying lists, one of the top three prospects in baseball. Mm-hmm. What is, you know, say I, say I like Bryce Harper, I think he's going to be very good. What is the proper way, uh, and, and of course, obviously, proper here is subject to interpretation. But what is the way that if I wanted to, to to collect Bryce Harper cards, should I do I go to like all these sort of because uh, I know that there are a couple sets like Bowman Chrome or Bowman Prospects, or there are a couple sets like that that deal exclusively with minor leaguers. There are other sets like you're mentioning, like the Bowman sets that have inserts of prospects. How do I or do I just wait for him for his first card to come out in the top space set? Yeah, it's up to you. You could you could you could try to find or try to collect these Har- uh, Bryce Harper cards from 2000 and 2011. There, there Tops made a, quite a bit of them, 
especially in their Bowman products. But if you wait until it gets caught up, there's going to be there's going to be more. Uh, it just depends on how much you want to spend and and what the values are, are of those cards uh, now and and maybe later. It's it's also a market because if you wait, the prices may go up, especially prices especially go up when a player gets called up to the big leagues. Yeah, Bryce Harper's rookie card has not been issued yet and will not be issued until he actually plays a game for the Nationals. The Bowman cards of Harper do depict him in a Nationals uniform, but they're considered insert cards and not really his rookie. With that said, I think there will always be a market among some collectors for those cards because they were his first major league issued cards. Uh, But I think once Harper makes his debut, I think you may see the value of some of those cards uh, decline a little bit. And, And Chris Thomas was correct. I mean, Topps really did go overboard with Bryce Harper last year. Oh, they put him in a number of sets, is that right? Let's see, Bowman, Bowman Draft, Bowman Prospects. There are a lot of Bowman-branded Bryce Harper cards from 2011 out there to collect. Yeah, even in those value packs in uh, like Walmart and Target stores, they had special Bryce Harper cards that you could even see through the packaging. And they came in three or four different different uh, versions. So that that was Bryce Harper was basically a way for Tops to sell more sell more packs. Right. Yeah, there, there's a real lot of Harper cards on the market right now. So, but I would work a little bit. But so that. so the, if I'm looking for like the Bryce Harper card though, that's still to come. We would say. Uh, well, or it just doesn't exist. Or this meaning that I'm trying to force this meaning on it, but it doesn't really exist. Well, when you say the Bryce Harper card, there was there are cards that are uh, serial serially numbered, or you know have a have a number. Uh, the, there, there are a number of cards that are only created for specific Bryce Harper cards. So there was last year. There is uh, I think there were a few different one of one cards. So there was only one card of this particular parallel of Bryce Harper, and those those are really expensive. So if you wanted the card. Um, you could you could go after one like that, or you could wait until he makes the big leagues and uh, until he makes the majors and go after a few of his um, you know, officially official rookie cards. It, it all depends on what you define as the Bryce Harper card. Is it going to be the most valuable one? Well, in that case, that's the Super Proctor, and there's only one of them out there, and you're probably not going to get it. <laughs> wait, what's it, what's, it, what's it called? A super fractor. A super fractor. What what happened is that happens is that in Bowman they created parallels called refractors, and what what Bowman Chrome is is that it's really just a a version of the regular Bowman product but printed on a chrome stock, and then the parallels are called refractors, and then what they do is that they put a little lens into the card that bends or refracts the light. So that when you look at it, it has a bit of a rainbow sheen to it. Uh, generally, it used to be that you got a refractor in like maybe every fourth or fifth pack, but now it seems that 
every pack has some kind of refractor. And and over the last five years, we've seen an abundance of different vert colors and different levels of refractors. So you have a regular refractor, a blue refractor, which is a little scarcer, a green refractor, a yellow refractor, every literally every color color under the rainbow refractor, all the way up to the super refractor, which is one of one. And who has it? Uh, I don't know. I don't know, but the previous year, somebody pulled a Steven Strasberg refractor and got, like, over 20 grand for it during the hype of, of the Strasberg hype of 2010. Someone just pulled it out of a pack? Pulled it out of a pack. Mm-hmm. And I think the first guy who sold it got, like, 16000 for it. And then somebody bought it back and paid twenty thousand. So yeah, it, it adds a little bit of a almost Willy Wonka esque golden ticket chase to it to to a product that somewhere out there there is one card of that one player that could potentially be worth thousands of dollars. Did the guy who pulled the the Steven Strasberg special refractor. Did uh, did he sleep in the same bed with his with his grandparents and parents? Uh, <laughs> it was funny because the guy who actually pulled it out of the and I don't know if it was the guy who pulled it out of the pack or the guy who sold it the first time. He um he went on ESPN and he got a lot of. A lot of, uh, do you, do you remember the story, Chris Thomas? No. About the guy who paid the 16 grand for the, the Strasbourg Super Fractor? I got no, all th- sorts of grief for it. Well, I remember, um, Brian Gray, who owns a, a card company, I think ended up with it. I think he's the one who paid $20,000 for yeah, it. Yeah, he's the guy who paid, uh, the 20 grand, the 21,000 for it. Um, what, do you, what, do you, what do you mean he owns a card company? Well, there's there's a there's a card company that uh, produces a uh, Leaf. If you've heard of Leaf, sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they were around in the '80s and they came back a few years ago. And there's a there's a guy who um, who owns the company who ended up being the buyer who, who paid basically who paid the twenty thousand dollars for that um, Strasburg Superfractor. Leaf is a, a company that does not have a license with either the Players Association or the league. And what their niche in the hobby is, is making cards of draft picks primarily. So a lot of these, these young guys that got drafted in the first and second round, he signs them and makes cards of them. And another uh, part of his his business model is to actually take, go out on the open market and buy back a lot of the, the top rookie cards and repackage them. And that's, I believe, what he paid the 21000 for the Strasbourg for, yep. for one of those kinds of products. Mm-hmm. But uh, Leaf is pretty much a startup. It's not really affiliated with the, the Donruss slash Leaf from the 80s and 90s, we just uh, bought the brand name. 
But uh, he's a guy who's uh, but Brian Gray's a guy who uh, likes to shake things up a bit, and he knows his audience. He knows uh, who buys his products, and he gives them what they want. Um, with that said, I don't think me or Chris Thomas has ever, have ever bought a Leaf product. But that's no. okay. Well, well, with that, I, that that opens up another question. I don't want to, and I don't want to keep you guys forever. But I am still curious: is what of the companies uh, that don't produce licensed material, licensed cards? Um, I mean, obviously, that's every company except for Tops, um, and as far as the MLB license goes, and then. Maybe there are some other companies I'm forgetting right now that have MLBPA licenses. But what what of those do you collect, if any of them? Hmm. I can't say that I do. Doesn't interest you? Not really, because most of them, like I said, most of these unlicensed products either consist of uh, minor leaguers and prospects or uh, retired players. Um, well, we see we see a few products that have uh, if they have a players association license, they'll have cards of players without their uniforms and without team logos. So that you know, some people some people might like that, but that's not not something that I'm really interested in collecting. Yeah, uh, Panini is a company that it, it's actually an Italian firm that, that bought Donruss a couple of years ago. And they acquired uh, a license with the Players Association, and they're really starting to get their first their feet wet with that now. Uh, their first product was a product that you mentioned earlier called Elite Extra Edition. Uh, it kind of seems like a weird name for a product, Extra Edition, when it's your first product. <laughs> but it's, it's a brand name that goes back to when Don Ross Panini actually had was fully licensed, um, and even though it does contain some actual major league baseball players, uh, those players are not depicted in uniform. Or if they are depicted in uniform, the, the logos are brushed out. It, it will be interesting to see how the hobby reacts to Panini when they get going later this year. What was the general reaction to Elite Extra Edition? Hmm. I, I don't collect it. I'm not, I'm not quite I sure. I know that Panini has another product coming out at the end of this month. I think that it's called Playoff Contenders, and that should be a pretty decent product too. Yeah, both Extra Edition and Contenders are both really geared toward uh, the kind of collector that collects uh, autographs of prospects. Because I know an extra edition got, I think every fourth pack had a uh, an autograph in it, and it was really uh, I think there were only 25 actual major leaguers, but there were some like 200 draft picks and prospects, and kind of gives you an idea of who this is marketed toward. I haven't seen a, a checklist with four contenders, but I kind of think that it's along the same lines. Um, we'll, we'll see what Donruss slash Panini has in store, uh, later on and what they intend to really do with their, with major league players. 
but I mean, how does the like what do I guess how are how are collectors reacting to extradition or the, the their like like that as a set? Is it is it well regarded or people paying money for it or people leaving it alone? Well, people are buying it, and a lot of collectors that I know who who buy it are big into prospecting. You know, they they they're they're buying it for the the, the young players, the pl- the players that aren't aren't uh, you know that are, that are still in the minor leagues or sometimes even playing in the Olympics or or just just uh, graduated high school. Uh, sometimes the, oh, a lot of times those cards will will increase in value as that player continues to climb up the ranks in the minor leagues and eventually makes it to the major leagues. So you could. You know, with the right player and the and, and some skill, you could buy buy some of these cards cheap now, and turn a profit on them in two, three, four, five years. Those are the the, uh, the the cards that Panini has been issuing are strictly well, for, for the most sense, strictly for collectors like that. Now, what I, I noticed on the at Baseball Cardpedia, uh, which again is is an excellent site run by you guys. Um, like in the base set, there there are a couple designations next to some major leaguers. Uh, the designation is RR. Does that have something to do with them? Is that a rookie card or is that something else? I think that would probably be a rated rookie. Okay. And um, it's part of like a subset. So it's part of a subset of cards in that set that are designated rated rookies, but aren't necessarily true rookie cards. Yeah, I remember this was a rated rookie is a thing that used to occur in the Donruss sets. I, th- I remember from okay. my, my collecting days, uh, like the, the Jose Canseco rated rookie was a, was a giant card at the time. Oh, yeah. Is that, from, worth, uh, is that worth thousands of dollars now? No. <laughs> <laughs> Not even close. <laughs> what, what do you want? <laughs> what could I sell that for if I owned it? Uh, probably ten bucks. Yeah, fifteen maybe. It it also depends on the condition too. Um, there are a lot of Jose Canseco cards out there. A lot of there aren't as many Jose Canseco collectors. <laughs> but I do know one who writes for Beckett who has like two hundred and fifty Canseco rookie cards. You might be able to sell it to him. Right. So as long as there's a market, there's a price. Oh, there's a price for everything, and there's a market for everything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and what, what what Chris didn't tell you is that he, I think he's one of only a few people that I know who has a rated rookie T-shirt. Yes, that's how. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Why didn't you reveal Why didn't you reveal that information, <laughs> Chris Harris? That's how much of a card geek I am. Yes. I have a T-shirt with the rated rookie logo on it. Yes. Do you feel like a rated rookie when you wear that around? Oh, I feel like a ten dollar Jose Canseco card. <laughs> do you have? Do you wear that little mustache that he has in that card as well? Uh, the one that looks like a creepy '80s porn star. No. Right. Yeah. Now, now he just looks like a creepy 21st century porn star. Pretty much. Yeah, he's adapted with the times. That, that's the one thing you can say good about him. <laughs> All right. Well, listen. I'm going to let you guys go. Although I, uh, I promise that I will continue to uh, not only to frequent your sites, but also harass you via email. As I, uh, maybe maybe we can meet again uh, uh, some sometime down the road, and I can report to you uh, how much money I've spent poorly on baseball cards. 
Oh, no problem. Yeah. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks a lot. So this this is uh, Chris Thomas. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. All right. Uh, Mr. Chris Harris, um, thank you for joining us. Thank you. All right. Uh, that is those guys. I'm gonna. You, you guys can stick around after I say goodbye. We can have the real conversation after. Uh, but for those mm-hmm. guys, uh, I am Carson Sestouli, and this has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.